Welcome, everybody, to a special Sunday edition of About the Cards podcast. We're live here on YouTube, as always, with my host at our trading cards, Ben Wilson, at Junkwax Twin, Stefan Laughlin. We have a special guest in the spot in the collector spotlight tonight uh, at Saber Geek, Rich Klein. He's a, he's a hobby legend, and I am beyond honored to have him on our my little tiny uh, podcast and uh, to have such a such an influential guy in the hobby hanging out with us today and talking cards. And I'm very excited. We're going to get into a little bit about his background. We're also going to find out what is a rookie card uh, because we've had a fun debate, and I know a lot of people have been um, going after Ben about the 87 Tops McGuire versus the 85 uh, USA McGuire and which one is a rookie card and which one's not. So we're going to enjoy that, uh, guys. But, Rich, welcome. Yeah, Tim, you said 85, not 87. Well, thank you for having me. It's always fun to chat about the hobby with knowledgeable people such as yourselves. Well, we're very excited. So let's let's get a little background. So, Rich, tell us about yourself. Like, when, when did you start collecting? How did you get into the hobby? And, and what have you done? Because I know there's a you've done a bunch of different things. Like most of you all, I started collecting packs when I was eight years old. Actually, I was seven, almost eight. And I really never really got out of the hobby since then. And my first packs were 1968 third series. And so, you know, and then I sort of tapered off a little when I hit between eight years. And then I helped pay through college but with the sports cards. And then I did some setup at shows. I was a full-time dealer from 1986 through 1990. And then I went to work at Beckett September of 1990. And I worked there 17 years full-time in the last couple on contract. Then I had a full-time hobby sabbatical for about seven years, during which time I worked uh, mainly for Bank of America. And then about December of 2016, after Bank of America decided to outsource my position, and uh, ComC noted uh, the owner of ComC noted a post saying, "Oh, you're between positions. That means you're available." Uh, yeah, and so since uh, January 17, I've been at ComC, and it's a lot of fun. I see so much stuff I've never seen before. I used to like to think I was all that until I started seeing some of the stuff coming in. It's like, whoa! I've never seen or heard of this before. That's that's awesome. Yeah, ComC is a is a great source with all the scans, and you can actually get up. You're trying to figure out what something is. I, I've been trying to sort. Somebody gave me a bunch of monster boxes of Bowman recently, from basically about 2012 through 18, and I've used that as a resource to go and find out. Okay, is this Bowman? Okay, it's Bowman, but it's the Chrome from the Bowman set, or is this Bowman Chrome? Oh, and then this is the Bowman Chrome prospects from Bowman Chrome, but not Bowman and. And figuring out that, and I have never felt dumber in my entire life than trying to sort this monster box. Of, you know, feel, it's only a few thousand cards, and I just don't, don't so. feel bad. I'm doing a set by set review of the database, and I sometimes get lost trying to figure out, you know, what some of the differences are. Yeah. So it's not, it's not just you. Yeah, the, <laughs> and I, yeah, the number can, continuations neat, but at the same time confusing. So, I'll, you know, that, that's really great. I I had Beckett probably. A subscription probably from early 90 through 94 or 5 so a lot of the stuff i consumed uh in my childhood was was product of your work and so i want to say thank you for that uh those were always uh some of my most cherished like prize in the mail every month was getting one a beckett in the mail so uh, i appreciate that 
Um, let's get into this. So there was some some big things with rookie cards in the 80s. I always remember there was the XRC notation. And never as a kid, you never truly understood what that meant versus a rookie card. And, and nowadays, it's real simple because on the card, it has a nice RC logo. And so you know it's a rookie card in all the sports. But can you kind of explain what that what a rookie card looked like looked like in the you know in the mid eighties? I mean, even going farther back, but until that change in 06 and then what happened in two thousand and six that, that changed everything? Okay, well in two thousand and six let's let's answer that question first. The card companies had there had been basically the wild wild west through two thousand and five. There went out of business in two thousand and five. 19, in 2004, we had more than 90 products in a year. We basically had a product every four days or two a week. And you couldn't really keep up with it. And on a business level, you can understand why MLB properties just said, you know, one, let's have one or two manufacturers instead of what we have now. And one of the complaints of the other manufacturers at the time, Upper Deck and Donruss Leaf Playoff, this is, I believe, this is before they became Panini. They may have been Panini at that point. I'm not exactly sure of when they changed from Domino's Leaf Playoff to Panini, was Tops had an unfair advantage because they could use older Bowman cards. You know, let's say Mariano Rivera had a 1992 card. Well, that's his Bowman rook. That's a Bowman rookie card. And if Mariano Rivera got hot in 1996 when he had that great year, well, then you weren't selling the current year product. So one of the goals was to increase the sales of the current year product because in 2005, the memories of 2001 and Ichiro and Albert Pujols were still so fresh that they carried the market so well that everybody said, you know, we need to have rookie cards when players are actually, you know, a rookie. And because football and basketball, by the nature of how their sports are, you're a rookie card in your rookie year. Baseball, you were having cards long before you made the majors in the most part. So they changed the rules at that point. So it did take a while to catch up. So you all have things like Justin Verlander will have, let's say, a 2005 update card that says rookie. And then he'll have a 2006 card that says rookie. You know, Chu Freeman had a 1999 Topps traded rookie card, and he had a 2006 rookie card. It took a while to cycle through, but now it's pretty much well established. You play in the majors, you're a rookie, and then you get a rookie card. And one of the other things was that you could not have a rookie card in the year of the card if you came up after September 1st. If you come up after September 1st, your rookie card is the following year. So if this guy, Wander Franco, I think is his name, comes up, you know, number one prospect in baseball, comes up September 2nd, he won't have a rookie card till 2020. Okay. And I think current day is now it's uh, I think it just passed because we saw in Tops Living that somebody didn't get the RC logo despite being in his quote unquote rookie year. Yeah, I mean and, and no and they're not perfect on that. I mean there have been Gerald Laird, who had like three years of major major league experience, showed up in some heritage set as a rookie prospect. He'd been in the majors for three years already. They are not perfect, they're pretty good, but Every once in a while, something slips through. And so I don't think it's anything where anybody's doing anything wrong. I mean, if you're going to screw up, why screw up on Gerald Blair? Yeah. Well, I have a question. So being a, a Royals fan and collector, there was a, a big chase on the Alex Gordon tops rookie card. Uh, I think it was the 06 one where 
they made a rookie card of his, but then they pulled it back, and then they have the cutouts or the the blank ones. Um, can you give us a little background on that one? If I remember correctly, Alex Gordon had not yet played in the majors at that point. Yet, yep. And the new rules were you can't have the card, of, you can't have the rookie card of somebody who hadn't played in the majors. So they jumped the gun. They jumped the gun. Okay. And so they had to do something to get rid, you know, get rid of the uh, player logo, which is why you have the Alex Gordon rookie card with the hole in the middle, so to speak, or the cutout yeah. in the middle. It's a cool card. Yeah, no, it's one of those neat ones. And and so when they had the XRC logo and like, you know, when you would see those in the magazine and, and the price guides, um, that just meant that they weren't, it was like a pre-rookie card, correct? Well, in, in the most part, every once in a while, there'd be something funky, but for the most part, it was designed to be Daryl Strawberry had a 1983 Topps traded card. He wouldn't be in a pack till 1984. So the 1983 was the extended rookie card. Okay. Or the pre-rookie wax pack accessible card because the hobby was good, <coughs> excuse me, but it wasn't as overwhelming as it would be a few years later. Yeah. And then the once Upper Deck came in '89, the target started really moving because once you had people started looking for ways to circumvent the rules of rookie cards or find a little loophole. It kept growing and growing and growing, and we finally got, and I think it was in some Pacific hockey set, and I don't remember which one, till the ultimate conclusion that there was a rookie card with a print run of one. Hmm. And so that, you know, that's another reason to change the rules and make them more accessible for everybody. So I'm looking at it here. It looks like Gordon made his debut not even in 2006. He made his debut opening day 2007. Right, and since you made the debut in 2007, you really shouldn't have a 2006 card of it. And Basier is right. So for, from a collector standpoint, I think all we really want is a universal definition so that we understand if, if you're just a rookie card collector, which one do you get? My, my dad brought up a point uh, this morning. He's like, you know, if 1987 comes along and you have a player – who has a Fleer and a Donruss and a Tops? By definition, they're all rookie cards. But which one would be the rookie card? Would it be the one that is Tops, just because Tops is the king of the hobby, or would it be the first one that was released in that year? It's all three. However, I get your father's point. Your father's point is certainly a valid point. But you know, as we've discovered. People, if it's issued in, you know, in the year of issue, it's a rookie card. Sure. And, you know, and so do you want to say something was the very first rookie card? I mean, in 1989, then the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card wouldn't be a rookie card because Fleur certainly came out in packs two to three months before we ever saw an upper deck pack. Mm. But, and, but do you not consider the 89 upper deck Ken Griffey Jr. a rookie card? You know, well, Sure, and that that's kind of... I suppose at that point it's it's your preference, right? Yes. It, you know, I obviously the '89 tops traded. You know, there, there's a lot of Griffey rookie cards, and, and he's a good example. They're all rookie cards, which is most desirable. Well, that would determine no. what what if you hate upper deck, even though it's one of the most iconic cards ever printed on cardboard. Maybe that's not your definition of which one you choose for your personal collection. Um, th th there was a, a player, I should have looked it up before the show, but uh, the, I was talking to Steph about it yesterday. 
in the late 70s, I believe it was 76, 77, 78, the same A's player was featured on one of those multiplayer rookie cards each year. And so sure. if you're pulling a, it out of a pack in 78, you're like, oh, I got so-and-so's rookie card. Well, technically, he's already had two of these things. So if you wanted his true rookie card, would it be the first one? Because by definition, they're still rookie cards three years later. It is, by technical definition, it's the first one because it's his first card appearance at the time. I mean, you have more famous examples of that, like Lou Pinella, who has who is on a multiplayer rookie card in 64, 68, and 69. Nobody really considers the 68 and 69 a Lou Pinella rookie card. Sure. But the marketplace has determined the 64 is the rookie card. I believe he's with three different teams, too. I think he's with the Senators, the Indians, and the Pilots on those three cards. But see, 69 would, if we're stretching the definition of what a rookie card is, is 69 not still a rookie card because of how it's featured on the card? In one level, it is. Because it's, it's a, he didn't play, he really didn't have, he still had his rookie eligibility. But the marketplace tells you it's a, the 64 sure. is accepted as the rookie card. It doesn't tell you that they're not other, quote, rookie cards. Bill Davis has five rookie cards, 1965 through 1969. I mean, in a sense, they're all rookie cards. But, right. they, but his first card is the 65. And, I mean, do you really want to create too much of an alphabet soup and have an FRC, first rookie card, second rookie card, third rookie card? Bill, Bill, Davis, <laughs> Bill Davis had five. What do you want to do? Well, uh, if it's up to Bowman. Wally I mean, Wolf has rookie cards in 1963 and 1970. Seven years apart. What do you and you know? What do you you know? What do you want to do? First rookie card, second rookie card for him. Well, and that goes back to your point about the designation, the post September designation, which we all understand. Baseball has you know the September call ups, and in order to be eligible for a rookie of the year award, you have to be underneath a certain threshold of at bats, and most players would not be able to hit that threshold in a 30-day window in September, thereby ensuring that the following season they're still rookie eligible. Therefore, it makes sense that their their rookie card wouldn't be included until the following season. Um, and there are and other funky rookie of the year things. There's also service time requirements. There are like three different like right. requirements, hitting, pitching, and service time. You could, you could not hit the um, – at bat thing if you're a player, but if you're the backup shortstop and you play all year and you bat 45 times because you're, you know, you're starting shortstop, Alexander Bogarts, um, you're not, time wise. yeah, right. you haven't batted enough, but you, but time wise, you're, you're way past rookie eligibility. And, and that explains in Lou Pinella's situation where he was called up in 64, I'm sure they included him in the top set and then he didn't have the threshold. So when he was called up once again in 68, he was still technically rookie eligible. Therefore he's a rookie card still. And thus in 69 as well. Exactly. And, and so th that that's frustrating from a collector, but understandable as a baseball fan. Exactly. And there were tons of cases. There were some even funny cases. Gaylord Perry has a single player rookie card in 62 and a four player rookie card in 63. So that's interesting. You know, because the 60s were, I mean, the 70s were as well, but the 60s were just rife with so many multiplayer rookie cards. Uh, it, it was, it, I, I don't have the figures in front of me, but it was insane when you're, you're going through a set and 
you know, if you're a team collector and you have to get five or six of these multiplayer rookie cards because, you know, everybody had one. Well, just hope that at least none of those rookie cards either featured fav famous people or were in high number series. If you're a 64 Mets collector, yeah. I think you have to do four or five rookie cards that have 64 Mets on them. Well, that's going to add to your Mets team budget more than the rest of the set combined. Uh, well, and that, that's kind of where, you know, Tim and, and Stefan, because of the teams that they collect, don't have that problem because they came along a little later. Uh, um, um, Stefan, that problem, 67, number 569. Yeah, you don't have quite as many. I mean, I got hit. 67 is ridiculous. When I came along trying to get the 67s, and these guys are no names. It's not like you have a big name. The last multiplayer rookie card I collected for my A's PC was uh, 62. Card 595, which is Jim Bouton's rookie card. Oh, good luck. Yes. And and it was Dan Fister's rookie card, who's a Kansas City A. And so literally, I just stopped asking at shows. I'm like, all right, I need Jim Bouton's rookie card. Do you have it or not? Because nobody knew who the heck Dan Fister was. I mean, and that, that's the case either Jim Bouton or do you have any 62 rookie parades, period, end of sentence. Right. Just right. Because the guy, for 99% of the people who are going to have 62 rookie parades know exactly what it is. At least in Stefan's case, number 569 was at least a Ven pack triple print. So the crew is actually fairly easy. It's just expensive, but it's fairly sure. easy. So sure. at least he caught a break on, on the Carew rookie card. Yeah, and you know, throughout the 60s and 70s, you had that same issue with uh, the league leader cards at the top of the checklist. So it's not an issue of uh, being scarce, like the high numbers. But I, I, I went back and had to collect a, a league leader. I forget who was on it of the A's, but it's a Mickey Mantle league leader card. And it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, now, now I'm paying Mickey Mantle prices. for And it's only $15 in low-grade condition. Let's not act like it's, it's huge. But, you know, depending on who they're on, the early 70s, Vita Blue, Reggie Jackson were featured on a lot for A's collectors. And, you know, there's a lot of big names. Uh, but still, $8, $10, $15 adds up quick when you need three or four of these times 30 right. years worth of cards. I mean, now we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, and you're nickel and diming it. Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, the good thing is these cards are available, and you can always find them if you're willing to dig. You know, you're in the, if I remember, you're in the Sacramento area. Well, one of the issues of being where you are, if you don't travel much, the A's are going to have, the A's and Giants are going to have a premium because you're an hour from San Francisco right. and an hour and a half from Oakland. And those are by far your nearest home teams. Sure. So people are going to jack, not really jack it up, but you're going to have to pay a slight regional premium. Yeah. Or you can buy the mail order. And if you buy the mail order, you, then you got to pay postage. And the way postage is going, it's good luck you're going to need that too. Yeah, and that's when combined purchases come into to factor. If you can, that's why you just abandoned the Royals. No one likes the Royals, especially out here, and you know it's easy if, <laughs> if you can find them. I mean, our, one of our local card shops, he's like, you know, I'll, I'll pay. You know, he would do Beckett online pricing for his store, and he's like, everything is a quarter of Beckett. So if Beckett wants five bucks for it, you're paying a dollar and a quarter in the showcase. But if it was A's and Giants, you're paying full Beckett price. If it's five bucks, it's five bucks because, you know, he's in that market, and it's understandable. Those are the players that are most desirable here locally, and, and it's understandable. So I, I, I'd still go online and buy most of that stuff, even if it was in the showcase, because I can get it cheaper. So okay. l let's do this. So we're talking A's. We're talking rookie cards. Let's combine them. So we all know that McGuire has two famous, quote, rookie cards. And the one I chased as a kid was the 87 Tops McGuire because that's the first year I collected. 
that was uh, he was hitting 49 home runs that year. I actually met him that offseason, got his autograph. Um, and But I never knew that he had this USA card. And later on, when he started chasing down the all-time season home run record, that 85 tops came very popular. Uh, he's representing Team USA from the 84 Olympics. And that became probably a more collectible card because there was so much 87 tops made. I, I think they actually might still be making it. I'm not sure, but it's fine for me. I love it. Um, so if, if you're looking as a collector, now we have Ben's opinion, right? 87 is the rookie card, right, Ben? It's a rookie card. I Okay, it's it's. but would you say it's his rookie? If you have to pick between the two, it's his rookie card, right? To, to me personally, it's his true rookie card, correct, because it's his first one featured with the A's. And so there's another camp where it says the 85 is his rookie card. Right. And, rookie and, card. and this was discussed till death in the 1980s. Trust me about this. If you go back to the conversation tonight, we probably, this is before I ever got to Beckett, but I'm sure Jim talked about it in Reader's Write constantly. It was a constant discussion during 80, 87 and even into 88 about what is McGuire's real rookie card. Now, the marketplace determined the 85 was the real rookie card. People would chase at the big shows or the small shows, people would chase the 85 card. Granted, in 87, they're still making the 87, so they're not chasing them as much. Right. And the marketplace assigned and basically said 85 is the premium card. Now, I happen to agree with that, but I understand and sympathize with your point. Your point is the 85 card is a card, and it's not just the Olympic subset. It's also the first, uh, the first number one overall draft pick to commemorate the 20 years of the draft picks. You have people like Sean Abner and Tim Belcher and Schwan Dunstan getting cards in that, and they're not wearing their major league uniforms either. So I get your, your point because those, those cards were not in major league uniforms. And your argument, if, I, if I'm guessing correctly, is that the 87 rookie card is the rookie card because he's actually wearing an A's uniform. Have I synthesized that correctly? You, you did. And, and, and for anybody out there listening that doesn't follow Rich and I, uh, we've had plenty of uh, discussions. And, and, and they're always from a place of respect. We understand that we don't necessarily see eye to eye. But Rich one time told somebody, that called me wrong. He's like, no, see, Ben and I argue all the time about this, but we don't say the other one is wrong because it's a very subjective, by today's definitions, McGuire's 85 would be his first card, like a Bowman, and his 87 tops would be similar to a 2011 update Trout. Nobody's saying the 09 Bowman is, is Trout's true rookie card. Um, my, my argument is, you know, as, as a McGuire collector, an A's collector that was growing up collecting these, was you have 16 guys on the 85 Olympic checklist. They were packed out, but those cards are USA Olympic cards. Nowhere on those cards whatsoever do they have any team affiliation. To my recollection, there's five guys that were major leaguers uh, at some point, and that would be, besides McGuire, it would be Odeby McDowell, uh, Corey Schneider, Bill Swift, and Shane Mack. There's a, there's some others too. Mike Dunn was a major leaguer. He actually got hot for a while. Okay. Johnny Marzano was a major leaguer. Most of them were major leaguers. I think the only one I remember off the top of my head that never came close to the major leagues was Flavio Alfaro, Alvaro, who gotcha. within two years was a truck driver. So 
with that group of guys, which is more than I had suggested, so that makes this point even more relevant. You're suggesting, not you personally, Rich, but just like, you know, the the overall consensus of the marketplace at that time is suggesting that this group of guys do not have a true team rookie card because to say the 85 Maguire, for instance, is his true rookie card, then the 87 would be his his second rookie card if we reference a conversation from, you know, 10, 15 minutes ago. But then you have his rookie cup card in 88 tops. And that's traditionally the second year card. Yeah, I think well, I think in your case, as it's being such a dedicated A's collector, I think 87 for you, you you can consider that his rookie card in a way because you, you don't need to get the 85 Maguire for your A's set unless you want to just have it because you're a big Maguire fan. And so for you, I think it's a legitimate concern as a team collector. I think as a general overall collector, I think it 85 is a rookie. But for a specific team collector, you, Stefan with the Twins, uh, Shep with the Royals, I think you, you can make that argument for me that's a rookie card because, right. because I don't need the 85 card. And where I would never call you wrong in this particular argument is because I have over 60 of the 1985s. And yes, if you, they're his rookie card. But the 87 is also his rookie card. And <laughs> I'm blessed. Not, to, I, I just like the needle and bend forever. disagree on this forever and ever, amen, you know, as uh, whatever his name used to sing. Yeah, 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 George, George Strait. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but see, that, and that's the thing is, I'm okay. If, if I was a Lou Pinella collector, I would include 64, 68, and 69 and be happy with it. They, they, they're all his rookie cards. Uh, you know, and yeah, you're arguing semantics when you're saying what is his true rookie card. Uh, yeah, you're right. As an ace collector, it's 87. As a Maguire or card collector, 85. At the end of the day, you know, 85 for me is just as desirable as 87. Yeah, 80 in some ways, 85 is more desirable. I mean, you know, when the Maguire rookie, the 85 exploded, I saw sales in front of my face at a store in New Jersey of $300 for the 85 card. Yeah. 300 freaking dollars. <laughs> and and, and at, the very, at the very least, even if we even if we were to concede, just for hypothetically, and we all agree that 87 is his true rookie card because it's his first card with the team, 85 by far and away is still his most desirable rookie card because it came first. Yeah, and I think it, the fact that it came first is why the hobby has considered his rookie card. It's by far and away more iconic as well. Yes. Yeah. And the fact that he's in the you know USA uniform certainly does not hurt. The funny thing with the USA uniform is if you remember, he's number four row one. Well, right. Tops was still doing you know the zero zero for the big names. Odom that was the big name coming out of the Olympic team. That's why he's card number four hundred. McGuire's four row one because of the alphabetical. If they had really guess correctly, Maguire would be number 400. I mean, it wouldn't right. make a difference in terms of the value, but that shows you coming out of the Olympics, he was not their number, he was not the number one prospect. And remember also in those days, Tops could not publish cards of people with college el eligibility left. So, excuse me. So you have Barry Larkin and Will Clark, and I think somebody else who played for the 84 Olympics, they don't have 85 cards. Now that wouldn't that be even cooler to have a Barry Larkin '85 card two years before he has any other card, or Will Clark? Oh, Will Clark. Yeah. 
You know what's funny? What's funny? Palmero would have been that guy on that team too, right? I don't think Palmero was on that team. Okay. No, but he so, did rookie, rookie in 87. My uh, cell signal is kind of trash, and I just realized that I can't – but barely hearing you guys uh, in the other room. However, um, and, and because this office is what it is, we've got every sort of supply and material <laughs> laying around. Um, but we actually have two cross publications for sport, Sports Cards Magazine price guide. Um, one from, to make a point, uh, February of 98 and one from September of 98. So uh, for those keeping track at home, the 85 tops in February – where is it? Uh, was $25. The 87 tops is uh, $1. In September, the 85, now mind you, that's the home run chase year, is uh, 90 for 85. And 87, it is 125. So. Market dictates rules, I guess. And I think Stefan's right. Market dictated the rules in that case. And it's and again, it's not that somebody's right or somebody's wrong. I just remember September is, even though it's the same, dated September, they probably had to go to press with the prices probably in July or August. Oh, sure. Right. So this right. is even before he breaks the record. And it goes up, I'm sure, for the rest of the year. So, uh, you know, this hobby's always had interesting quirks to it. Rookie cards are certainly one of them. And also, too, it really comes down to the collector's opinion versus, like, you know, do you, do you, are you, some people don't collect Bowman and some people only collect Bowman uh, as being the, the cards to have or the chase cards. And, you know, there's a guy like Taiwan Walker. I think he was in Bowman as a prospect for like four or five years. And at one point, how long is a guy a prospect for before you just like walk, you know, like Bubba Sterling, before you just walk away and be like, oh, he's not, he's just a guy now. There was a guy that both Bowman and Panini published a ton of. He came through Arizona, I think, briefly pay, played with your Royals, Tim. Uh, Pete O'Brien. Oh, Peter O'Brien's bounced around <laughs> to a ton of teams. He's a Yankee, too. Was in every single set. And finally, as a rookie card in Series 2 as a, as a, as a uh, Marlin. I'm pretty sure Peter O'Brien has – I bet you if you look it up on your phone or on the computer, Peter O'Brien has a cameo with the Twins, I thought. I mean, they may be a Twins card of him. I, I believe the answer is senile, and I don't remember things like I used to. Oh, you're old and senile. Now I it's just want the 85. And Angela. I, I just won the, the conversation. Every time we bring up 85 versus 87 McGuire, I'm going to say out of Rich's own mouth, live on air. And He's old and senile. Thank you. Oh, vindicated after yeah, all these muscle years. Memory, muscle memory will tell me when you're old and senile, it, it brings back all your, you know, you don't remember what happened yesterday. You can't remember what you had for lunch yesterday. Uh, and I really don't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. Actually, I stopped the subway yesterday, so I do know what I had. Um, but <laughs> you, uh, your muscle memory will go back 40 years. You'll remember, I can remember things from 1967 and 68. Better than I know stuff from the last last baseball season. Meanwhile, Stefan's looking up. Uh, I'm, know, having, I'm, having flash, I'm having flashbacks of, of begging my dad for 87 cello packs at Dylan's in Wichita uh, to, to buy them because I you know I needed collations. I needed them. So, so Rich, Rich, who do you collect? If do you what's your what's your collection look like? I mean, since '68, I, I mean really that's don't have you know I'm I'm going to be honest. I don't have much of a collection anymore. 
I sort of accumulate things relating to a few players that have various things to do with my background. We've had one major leaguer from my hometown. His name is Joe Cunningham. And the late Ernie Montella made me a beautiful plaque probably 25 years ago. One of my Beckett teammates at the time brought him up a bunch of cards. I said, you're going to bring these cards to Ernie Montella. And Ernie says, um, and give him my address and he'll know what to do. And the guy says, I said, don't worry about it. Ernie will, t- Ernie will know exactly what to do. It took Ernie about 30 seconds to say, oh, no problem. I got it under control. Ernie was a really nice man. He was an oil company executive. He passed away about two years ago. And he, and he made me this beautiful frame of all the Joe Cunningham, beautiful frame piece, all the Joe Cunningham cards. He found an 8x10 signed autograph from me. He found one of those mid-60s pennant inserts that, you know, with all the teams he had played for. And I have a plaque of all the Joe Cunningham cards, so I don't have to chase them down. I got them all in front of me. Can you take a picture of that, Rich, and tweet that out? I would. Love to see it. I would. It's at my home. I'll have to have my wife yeah, take absolutely. a picture. We, we would love to see that. Remember, I have this. My dad I, does, too. Yeah. I, it does have a camera on it, but I don't like to tell people it actually can do internet stuff, too. <laughs> I, it's easier to tell people. I don't know how any of this fancy stuff like Stefan or Angela does. Well, um, I can stop by one day and get a nice picture. Yeah, too. we'll have you stop by one day and get a nice picture. It's a really cool item. And then in some modern player cards, there are two play two players from my high school who have played Major League Baseball, Pedro Alvarez and Harrison Bader. So whenever I see cheap dime quarter cards of them, I just buy them and put them away and they're not for sale. And then there were guy I went to Columbia University in the city of New York. So I you know I don't change I don't chase Garrett cards. I don't chase Eddie Collins cards. But, you know, if I see Gene Larkin cards or Frank Seminara cards or there was a guy for the um, – I forgot his first name, but he played for the Blue Jays in two, and he played in the World Series in 2008. He has a bunch of rookie cards. He's actually on second base when the World Series ends in 2008 and the Phillies win. And, you know, if I see his cards, I'll pick them up. And, you know, there's a couple other guys like that, and I'll collect guys who share my birthday – Davy Cash, when I was growing up, was the only major leaguer who, who had the same birthday as I had. He was obviously a little bit older. And, you know, we have people like uh, Joe Montana. So, I'll, you know, I don't mind putting away or just playing with Montana cards or Ernie Nevers cards or Roger Bresnahan cards, you know, stuff like that. So I don't want to say I'm a dedicated collector, but I, I sort of keep certain things just for fun. That's cool. Well, I share a birthday with Bruce Jenner, so – so, I so guess Caitlyn Jenner now, all, but you collect cards of all transgender people, then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's uh, I never really knew who he was as a kid. I got those calendars and it would say like the sports people's birthdays. I'm like, who's Bruce Jenner? Like he was the one list, and I'm like, ah. then I find out, and then later on it happens. Um, so you also do something really cool, um, where you take in donations and you end up having a big, big uh, card show for your synagogue, correct? And is that that's one or two couple times a year? It's twice a year. I talked to a good friend of mine, and I, you know, one time you mentioned him on the air, and I said, "Oh, by the way, Stefan, he's in my cell phone," because I've known him for thirty such years. You know, whenever you talk about getting the uh, Walter Johnson. the Walter Johnson card from Mark McRae, I, I pulled out yeah. my phone and said, "By the way, here's Mark's phone number." And here's Mark, Mark's here's, a great guy. And here's the here's the cell phone number he doesn't want people to know. And you know, here's the uh, here's his other cell phone number that he really doesn't want people to have. I didn't show him that, but I just showed him I had both numbers. 
And so I've known Mark. Mark runs a show for, for a church at the San Leandro, I believe, in San Francisco. But he's run a nonprofit show for 30 years. So Mark was one of the people when I started the show I called for advice. So basically I listened to Mark for two hours as Mark explained to me a lot of things that would go on. And basically everything he's ever told me is dead on. And we also have a local promoter in New Jersey named Gary Sipos, who runs a show for the Boys and Girls Club in Garfield, New Jersey. And I used to attend that show when my, when my parents and then my dad was still living. I used to go because it was the first, it was the odd Sunday, the first, the third or the fifth Sunday of every, of every month. There are exceptions. Like if January 1st is the first Sunday, he's not going to have a show that day. If Easter Sunday is the third Sunday of April, he's not going to have a show on Easter Sunday. But Gary's been running a nonprofit show for 25 years or more. So I talked to these, I talked to them and then we were doing door prizes. And that was all well and good because then I could bring my normal stuff and just every couple hours take a break. Texas state law and its infinite wisdom, and no, and I don't know if it's Republicans or Democrats, so I don't blame any party for this. It's just the state law. Nonprofits or 501Cs such as, such as my synagogue are prohibited from doing more than two raffles a year. Well, I was doing 10 door prizes a show. Well, 10 door prizes legally can be considered 10 raffles. Gotcha. You don't want to make an unforced error. <clears throat> so... <clears throat> There was the, pre the past two past presidents ago in our brotherhood remembered a local Dallas dealer named Myron. Myron would wheel a big TV into the shows with him, the big shows, and he'd sell grab bags. And every grab bag had a price. Every grab bag had something worth the money and also had a price slip inside. And a big price slip was obviously for the TV. Well, of course, that backfired once that some dealer had a really good show, goes to Myron at the end of the show. How many bags do you have left? 150. Okay, I'll take them all. I want the TV. And Myron wasn't real happy because then he had to go buy another TV. But we copied that. And so we now have an office and a storage unit and other places, too, uh, that we've got in the last, probably last year, we've gotten maybe a million cards. And everybody who comes to our show gets a bag of cards with a prize slip. And then we redeem them at the prize table. And we sell tables. And the tables are very affordable. Mark told me what I should not never be above on the dealer price. And I've never gone above that number. And with if as long as I'm running the show, we'll never go above that number. And we have no administrative costs. And I'm not playing and I'm not paying for the use of the synagogue social hall. So we have very, the only costs we have frankly, tends to be occasionally we have to get a new sign. And we also, you know, because of Jewish dietary laws, we do try to, we, we do have kosher style food. And it's sure. so cheap that it's like a hot dog, chips and soda are $3. Now, most people, most dealers are just thrilled. $3, I don't have to run out and get any food. And it's, sure. and it's Hebrew national hot dogs and chips and a soda. And okay. them bagels and cream cheese for breakfast. That's on us. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna be at the net. I'm flying in just just to hang out to have a hot dog and a bagel and you, you need to. You need yeah. to. Because Steph shares Steph shared some of the stuff that's been that's been donated for the giveaways and and just with us and and it's amazing what what you what you've received and I love I love that fact of you're taking this from from collectors that you know are moving on or, or trying to make space or whatever and, and giving it back. And doing something bigger with it, and that's that's amazing. That's that's why I love about the hobby is that there's so much generosity in it 
that sometimes that gets lost with all the other stuff we hear the you know the trimming or the the fake autographs or whatever it happens to be that all gets lost you know and 98 percent of the items in the market are perfectly fine the problem is it's an influential one to two percent sure. you know many years ago i went to a card show and someone challenged me to tell me who had good autographs and who didn't this is before the uh, third party authenticators really got going so good that's as it. good as in authentic correct yes. not as okay just want to clarify yes good as in authentic sorry uh and i walked around the show and i got all 20 right and the person asked i've done this with 10 people you're the only one who got this right how'd you know and i said well it's real simple if the people only had emmett troy irvin montana you know the big stars at the time that can't be all good sure if the person has not just emmett but daryl daryl moose johnson and nate newton and uh, mark tunay i'll bet you the items are good most of their items are good you're right that's a simple way of knowing know who you're dealing with the the third party authenticators graders they get it right 98 percent of the time are they perfect no they get it right 99 percent of the time the problem is they're not 100 nobody's all right right and and there's your biggest problem we're we're still people we make mistakes i make mistakes and, you know one of the things i talk about this job being humbling at com c is when id cards there's stuff that comes in that i'll think I'm, i got right and guess what it was something obscure that I should have caught and missed. 96, 97 top stadium club members only. That happened to you last night or yesterday. <laughs> it's really hard to determine those cards. And some, you know, when I see correction requests coming, I'll look and say, okay, was this something that was an obvious miss? Or was this something that was like, uh, yeah, I can understand. The serial number is really hard to read and you don't see it. Or, you know, the members only logo is so into the background that you just say, uh, why, how, how can anybody tell these cards apart? Sure. So it's hard. It's hard for everybody. You know, I like the fact that when I can read a serial number, it's wonderful. When I can tell what a variation is, you know, <coughs> excuse me, Panini in the last couple of years in a lot of their sets has made it easier. They put a V next to the variation on the back. Up or ABC. Or ABC. Tops yeah. in the Heritage set this year noted on a lot of the stuff, action. Or short right. print or something. Right. And, and that is a wonderful tool for collectors to say, okay. It's very plain and simple. Without having to bust out the magnifying glass. Well, what was the year that had the spark? Was it 80? Was it uh, 2011 that had the sparkle cards? They had sparkle right. for a couple years. 2010, 2011. Yeah, and it would be like on the belt buckle or like an elbow. Three years of sparkles. And those yeah. are really hard to tell. Oh, yeah. Because well, it's just it, a very tiny spot somewhere in the card. Well, the, yeah. the the Tampa Bay Rays actually have a star in their logo, and that was a rather new logo at that time, uh, which kind of threw it off for collectors. Like, is that a sparkle variation, or is that just part of their logo? Uh, and and then you know, to speak on heritage, we've brought that this up on the show a few times. It was a few years back. The Adam Eaton uh, throwback jersey that he was wearing was actually a base card, although there were throwback variations <laughs> on the checklist, and so people were buying you know, nickel base cards for 100, 150 bucks, thinking it was the throwback. And, you know, Ryan Cracknell brought that to people's attention and at that time. And sometimes uh, on these cards, you get like the tops where they have the celebration short prints. And every once in a while, you know, I guarantee you in every set, there's at least one tops card that's a celebration short print. 
you know, that's not a short print. The guy's right. celebrating, and that's the base card. And right. that always confuses people when that comes out. And, you know, back in, I want to say, 97, Panini did a, a Pinnacle did like a, one of the Pinnacle certified sets where they had X, Y, and Z, Y, and X, Y, refractor, y refractor, you know, uh, and all that stuff. And they access. were assuming dealers were going to break cases and know what the difference was. Nobody broke enough cases. I mean, they had eventually, this is like two days before deadline, they finally told us what the accesses all were because otherwise the $2 cards were selling for $200 and the $200 cards were selling for a dollar at the time. Right. Because they didn't provide the information. Now, it's okay to have one or two surprises in a set. I think there's nothing wrong with adding us, adding one surprise, just, hey, what's this? Oh, cool. But I think if you 98% of the information isn't correct, then I think, you know, isn't noted, then you've got a problem. But if, you know, if you throw one thing out for collectors to find, I don't think it's as bad, especially if it's assess accessible. If it's labeled correctly. I mean, for, for years with Topps Finest, I've been very wary of buying the refractor, only buying from Brent Williams because he knows what he's looking at. And I don't trust eBay, Joe Random eBay seller. I mean, I had that happen last year with the Topps Holiday. People were calling them the Snowflake set, which they technically are, but they're Topps Holiday. The Snowflake refractor was actually embossed. Right. And I, I, you can tell it's if you're feeling those cards, but, that, but you can't tell on a scan. You can't. And if Joe, Joe eBay guy's like, this is the Snowflake. No, no. I was like, rub your finger over it. And they're like, no, I'm not doing that. And I'm like, all right, then I'm not buying. And it was very hard to piece together a team set because people didn't know the words to use. And the other set that we've brought up in the past on the show is uh, high tech, you know, with all of their stupid and some of them are really cool. They're parallels not being labeled. It's hard to tell the difference yeah. between what they're actually called, what's a swirl and what's a circle and so on. And so the one, the one thing I liked when they did with tops total this year uh, with, you know, with, with that release is that on the back of the card, so your base card has just the number, but if it's a colored parallel or if it's an autograph, it has a letter, a dash letter. So it's dash A, dash B, dash C, dash D. Even though it's numbered and in in you have a border and autograph on the front, they've still made a, def, uh, a designation on the back of the card that, hey, this is not a base card. So, I mean, I think that's really smart to do. My question uh, for Rich is, so with the last two seri uh, top series, two with, with 18 and 19, in uh, 18 they had the rookie short prints, for uh, Gleber Torres and for Ronald Acuna. And this year they had the no-numbered Vlad Guerrero. Uh, they'll, they'll have a rookie card logo on them. Uh, the prior two were shorter printed than the Guerrero ended up being. And they had update rookie cards. And I assume that Guerrero is going to have an update rookie card as well. What are your What are your thoughts on when, when a manufacturer does something like that? My instinctive thought is that the update will be the rookie card. Especially in Guerrero's case, he's not numbered as part of the set. So it'll be a rookie year card, but not his tops rookie card. As I said, definitions get more and, you know, people take more and more leeway. They'll always look for it. But in terms of a rookie card, the Guerrero update will be his rookie card. However, this is always, this seems, remember I talked about surprises being okay? This is a case where it's very obvious that the Guerrero card is a surprise. It may not have been in the checklist. That's okay to throw that in because you, you find out what it is fairly quickly. And if there's 100 on eBay, you realize pretty quickly that's not really a short print. 
Yeah. Even if it's a short print, it's not like, oh my God, there's two. It's not like some of these throwback uniforms where Keith Oberman pays $1,000 for it and says, okay, I know it's one of the five they made or 10 they made. Yeah. So I don't have as much of an issue with that. But and also, I don't have as much of an issue with how that is put in trying to do sales because we also have to remember for Tops and for Panini and for Upper Deck and for Leaf and for every manufacturer that makes cards, it's still a business. And if you don't make money, you can't stay in business. No, definitely. I, I've really seen, um, you know, I have a pretty good relationship with the guy that owns our, our card shop in town. We were just talking about pricing as far as pre-sale prices and how much it's changed, especially with Topps flagship and Bowman product in the last couple of years. Just the demand has gone up. But to the price, and he's, he, you know, it's just, it, to me, it's amazing. And I think stuff like this helps, but it just kind of concerns me at the same point. Are we going to end up somewhere like we did in the 90s where so many people came back in and they were like, well, we can make more of it because now it's selling for more. And then years down the road, we find out, hey, God, we got to a mass produced point. I mean, at some, at some point there it is because if we look back and like up until 2017, the, in a jumbo box, you got a gold card in every pack. Well, in 18 and 19 now, it's like every, I think it's like every two and a half packs, you're going to get a gold card, which tells me that because they can only make 2019 of those, that there's so much more product being made to drop them in less packs, right? Yeah, right. It, this is the hardest issue for card companies. Publish too much, then you then it ends up sitting on the shelf, and then you don't sell enough the next year. Publish too little. And then, you you know, the next year, everybody wants to buy the product because this year's product exploded. There's no, again, there's no good answer. Card companies have to do the best they can unless it's a product you know has a limited run. You know, if you know that they're going to make a thousand national treasure sets or the cup or whatever the, some of the high, or Panini Flawless or however many, you know, in any of these products, you know, or Tops, uh, Sterling, let's say, you know, whatever it is that you, you make X amount. Well, if you know that you're going to make X amount, you can say, hey, this is going to be X amount. Otherwise, you kind of sort of have to print the demand, too. We've been through this on all these levels. You have to print on a business level because you want to stay in business. You want to, with tops, you know they're going to make a ton of tops. Then they're going to make the factory sets. And I bet you they'll throw something into the factory sets or some right. of the factory sets to make them more appealing to, for people to buy them. Yeah, and those come out by the way on Wednesday. Uh, we're going to cover that as on our show so, Wednesday. Oh, I guarantee you, there'll be some sort of insert in those sets that probably wasn't in the regular set. It probably won't be just a pure factory set. They'll yeah. probably, you know, I don't know if this for a fact, but I'll bet you there's something in there. Yeah, the other thing is, you know, you have a good relationship with. You broke a case, if I remember, of tops top series two. Am I yep. correct? You know, if I'm a store owner. And one of the things I wouldn't mind doing, let's say I was going to get 25 cases of tops, and I don't think I can sell 25 cases of tops. And you think, hey, I can sell some of these. Okay, I'm going to, you know, if the case costs 1000 to me, I'm going to say 1100 or 1200 to you. I'll take, you know, I'll just call you when it comes in. Yep. Here's the check I'm writing. Here's, here's your check you're writing. And, you know, that helps me defray the cost. So if I sell... And Ben's the economic here, so he's the he's the math whist, he's the guru. So, but if I if I sell twenty uh, of the cases to people like you at twelve hundred each, and then I'm paying the check for twenty five thousand, 
I've gotten 24,000 of my 25,000 back. I have five, five cases that cost me $1,000. That's $200, that's $200 each. At least those five cases I can sell at the designated price without, and making good money, you know, make a good profit. The, the next time I have to get it, yeah, it may have to cost me more, but at least I've offloaded my, my uh, costs where I can then help my regular customers too with reasonable prices if they come in immediately or they tell me to hold something for them like yeah. a box. And he, you know, the funny thing is you, you talk about that. He, when I went in uh, a week later, um, cause he's not in the store every day cause he has two. And I said, Hey, I want to, I want a refund. I didn't get exactly what I wanted out of my case. And he goes, I'll buy it back right now. He's, he completely sold out a jumbo series two within a week and he's buying it from, from tops directly. He has a, he has a account with them and then also from three different distributors and couldn't keep it. And he barely had any hobby left. And he goes, I've never seen it sell. And his, you know, umpteen years of selling cards. He goes, I've never seen a, a, a flagship product sell that quickly. And, and usually series two of the three series is the dead series. It's the dog. It's yeah. the dead series. Yeah. And he reached back out to his distributor and they said, well, we have some more, but now it's going to cost you $42 more than what you pre pre-pot it for. And he goes, well, that's more than I was selling it for when I got it in the shop. And they go, uh, we found some in a back room or whatever. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I, I'm good. And, you know, yeah. so it's just, been, it's just crazy to me, uh, you know, what, what's going on there. You talked about some of the other brands and Panini puts and Leaf put out products that don't have, they don't have license through the manufacturer or through the sports, but they do with the players association or the people, the players directly. How do you feel about seeing non-licensed products versus having a licensed product uh, as far as collectability wise? Well, considering probably before 1966, everything's technically unlicensed. I don't have a real problem with that. I mean, that's hobby history. Uh, you know, again, if the Players Association are comfortable and collectors are comfortable, that's fine. I read on the message boards that there are some collectors that will not buy Panini or Leaf products because they don't have the, uh, the logos. That's their decision. Other people say, I love it because I feel that I get really good value for my money out of those products. And I'm one of those. There you go. Stefan, Stefan loves Diamond Kings, if I remember correctly. He got his famed Babe Ruth bat out of a Diamond Kings mm -hmm. uh, box. So... Everybody uh, has a right to their opinions on that. And it's not my opinion to say it's right or wrong. It's my opinion to say you make your, you make your own opinions. So it's like Ben and I discussing the rookie card debate. It's our decision to be right or wrong. And I see we've hit our magical one-hour mark. Yes. So Uncle Rich is one hour, so we're there. Um <laughs> We want, we definitely, we, there's more we could get into and, and I would love to do that. So maybe we can do a second episode of this, but, sure. uh, you know, I really appreciate taking the time on a Sunday to come and hang out with us. I'm very honored to have you on the show and that you listen I'm, to the show. I'm Steps honored your, to be with you. You were, you were on Stump the Schwab. I mean, come on there. Yeah, you're on the he lost. Nobody beat Schwab, okay? Nobody so, Schwab. The funny thing about that is, is after I lost the dumb guy that, that went on to play him head-to-head, -head, I started answering all the questions, right? And the producers were like, man, because when they talked to me and I did a quiz on the phone, I went like 20, 20 for 20 or 25 for 25 yeah. on the – and I remember the last question was like, who's the manager of the, the Cincinnati Reds? I was like, oh, Dave Miley. And uh, they were like, oh, no one knows that Dave Miley is their manager. And so when I went out there, I mean, it was an awesome experience. But, uh, yeah, it's one of those I wish I could have gone head-to-head -head with. He probably was one of the nicest people I've ever met after the show because pre-show he was, like, bean-mugging all of us. And and Stuart Scott 
was everything you saw on TV off screen too. He was he you know he came up afterwards, gave us the biggest hugs and high fives, and was just going back and forth with us. Uh, that was really cool. And um, I wish my friend still had his website because that's where the video is. Because the TiVo I had it recorded on somehow got lost. So well, we'll talk about that the next time. All we right. can talk about famous people we have met in our lives. But I, I got to admit, you you, you one up me with that one. Oh. So. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, guys. Ben, Steph, it was great to hang out with you on a Sunday. Uh, everybody will be back live Wednesday at 8 p.m. Uh, Pacific, 10 Central. Uh, we'll have a good show. There's going to be lots of conversation. I think we're going to have a special guest uh, on that show as well to talk about Pinnacle. Uh, about the hobby history of Pinnacle and what that was. We kind of talked about score a few weeks back, and this is a continuation of that. Uh, there's not a lot of new releases, uh, so we're going to have a lot of us next week. Uh, so enjoy that content. That'll be fun. A lot of uh, Ben and Steph and I. So uh, we will see you then. Thanks a lot for joining us on this version of About the Cards, uh, Collector Spotlight with at Saber Geek Rich Klein. You can always follow us at About the Trading Cards. Or I'm sorry. Or just About the Cards. About the Cards. Yeah, about the cards Bye. on Twitter. It's Sunday. Uh, you can follow Ben at our trading cards. Follow Steph at Junk Wax Twins. And you always follow me at Big Chef 79 on Twitter and like Rich at Saber Geek. Enjoy, and we will see you in a few days. Have a good night or good afternoon, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.